This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and here's an update to a catfishing story that had such a tragic ending that happened just one year ago this November. It was Thanksgiving of 2022, and Shelley Blandon and her sister Brooke Weinick were celebrating Thanksgiving at her parents' house. The two and their families were enjoying much-cherished holiday time with Mark and Sherry Weinick at their Riverside, California home. Mark and Sherry were longtime residents of Riverside, where Mark had coached high school softball and baseball for 34 years. Now, the holiday was exactly what the Weinicks had hoped for, full of love and laughter and tasty food. But the next day was a different story. Shelley had set out to do what a good share of Americans do on the day after Thanksgiving. It's known as Black Friday, and Americans shop on Black Friday. Shelly happened to be in line to purchase Christmas lights when she got a call from a neighborhood friend who lived near her parents' home. She told Shelly her parents' home was on fire. Shocked, Shelly just left the cart in the pay line and she rushed out of the store. And it wasn't just the house she was worried about. Her parents, Mark and Sherry, and her sister, Brooke, and Brooke's 15-year-old daughter were supposed to be at the home. As she rushed to that house, another phone call was being made, this time to 911, about a concerning situation a few houses down from the Weinicks. Dispatch was reporting to responding officers that a man in a trench coat was seen struggling with a teen girl, nearly forcing her to get into a red Kia Soul. The caller said the car with Virginia license plates was parked in her driveway, And the caller just had that sense that the situation wasn't quite right. She said she had noticed the car about a half hour earlier, and she was just kind of keeping an eye on it. When she saw a man who was forcibly escorting a teen girl to the car. Now, the girl didn't appear to be wearing shoes or pants. The caller reported that the girl started to speak, but she couldn't seem to quite formulate the words. The caller smartly wrote down the Virginia license plate number, and she gave it to the 911 operator. As the Kia left the driveway and then the neighborhood, the fire brigade and the police descended on the neighborhood and the Wynicks. The devastation quickly rose when firefighters reported that three deceased individuals were found in the burning home, and they hadn't died from the smoke or the flames. A triple homicide had occurred, and Shelley returned to her parents' home to learn about this horrific nightmare. Firefighters had quickly extinguished the blaze, but Sherry, Mark, and Brooke were dead in the front entryway of the home, and Brooke's 15-year-old daughter was missing. So who's the guy in the car from Virginia, and where is he headed with the 15-year-old? 
Well, police quickly learn it's 28-year-old Austin Edwards from Saltville, Virginia. And according to NBC News, Austin had some concerning behaviors before traveling to California. And those behaviors, well, they stretch back several years. When he was a high school student, bouts of depression led him to choose to drop out of school and obtain his GED. He had worked at both Walmart and Lowe's, and he'd even given higher education a shot when he attended Southwest Virginia Community College. That was in 2017. Now, he didn't complete a degree or a certificate, and according to the father of a friend who both worked with Austin and attended college with Austin, well, he said his daughter always appreciated how hard Austin was working to get his family and himself out of poverty. And then Tommy Gates, who is another friend of Austin's, well, he told NBC News that mixed in with the hard work were some low, low moments for Austin. In 2016, Tommy said Austin had been placed in a psychiatric hold after Austin had threatened to kill his father. On the Sunday of that 2016 incident, Austin was watching the Super Bowl with his dad, and then later that night, his dad kind of fell asleep, but he was then awakened by loud noises coming from the bathroom. He called out to Austin, but he couldn't get him to communicate through the locked door, and he then used a screwdriver to get the door open, where he found his son bleeding from a wound on his hand. Austin's father noticed a hatchet and a knife in the bathroom. As he called 911 to help his bleeding son, Austin went to his bedroom and sat on the bed, opening and closing a pocket knife. Then when Austin figured out that an ambulance was on the way, he attempted to leave the house. His father tried to detain him, and Austin began screaming and threatening his father. As EMTs and police arrived, the threats continued. Eventually, Austin was handcuffed to a stretcher and transported to the hospital where the psychiatric hold was initiated. Now, it did seem that Austin had recovered from that 2016 incident because he went on to apply for the Virginia State Police Academy, and he graduated from that program in January of 2022. He had secured employment as a trooper, and he'd also begun an online relationship with a woman living in California. So according to his friend Tommy, he believed the online relationship had been going on for nearly five years, yet Austin and the woman had never even seen each other in person. But despite never meeting, Tommy said Austin had purchased a home in Virginia with the intent that the two would live in it together. Now, all of that doesn't really match the connection to the Weinicks, right? He's buying a home with the intention that an online relationship is going to lead to, I mean, at a minimum, living together, yet he's spotted in California apparently abducting a 15-year-old and also suspected of killing three people related to that 15-year-old. Well, police soon learn that Austin is getting pretty good at online relationships because he had been catfishing the 15-year-old. Austin while taking an oath to protect and serve, had been lying to the 15-year-old pretending to be a 17-year-old teen. Police have not released much about the catfishing communication, and I believe trying to protect the now 16-year-old girl is why we don't have much about the relationship. And I also think we can all appreciate that. We don't want this girl's life ruined. But it has been reported by ABC7 
that Austin had asked the girl for sexually explicit images, which led to her stopping the communication with him shortly before the murderous Thanksgiving holiday. So now we're all caught up to that November and that pending Thanksgiving week in 2022. Okay, right at the end of October, on the 28th, Austin resigned from his job as a Virginia State Police Trooper. Washington County Sheriff's Office had hired Austin to work in their patrol division, and he was set to start on November 16th. All right, so keep this straight. Austin has passed clearance and the hiring process for two different law enforcement agencies, even though he has a history of depression, suicidal ideation, and he's currently engaged in catfishing at least one team. Okay, with the new job, Austin's work schedule seemed to have some fluctuations since he was still in the orientation process, and he appeared to have just enough time to travel across the country, meet his online girlfriend, and then return to his job following the Thanksgiving holiday. So you heard that part right. His friend Tony says he was traveling to California to meet up with the online girlfriend, not with the 15-year-old. So whatever is actually accurate about the reason for making the trek and whatever actually happened in the next few days, all of it toppled the dominoes in Austin's fragile mental capacity. He searched for the Weinick's address in that week prior, and on the day after Thanksgiving, he showed up at the 15-year-old's grandparents' home He flashed his Virginia police badge in order to gain entry to the home. He then sliced Brooke's throat and smothered the grandparents by placing bags over their heads. He then set the house ablaze and abducted his catfishing victim. All right, armed with the Kia Soul's Virginia license plate number, it took authorities a little more than two hours to track down the car. At first, the California Highway Patrol followed Austin's car from a distance until the SWAT team could assemble to intercept Austin and rescue the 15-year-old. When approached by the SWAT team, Austin led deputies on a pursuit, and during the pursuit, Austin fired at the SWAT vehicles, striking them multiple times. Then, amidst the chaos, Austin lost control of the Kia, and he drove off the road. The crash made it possible for his 15-year-old victim to exit the car and run towards deputies. And then Austin also exited the car and continued firing towards officers before turning the gun on himself. Austin died at the scene, and so did much of the hidden information about his reasoning for being in California and also what he intended to do with his catfishing victim. Now, all the digging I did in this case on Facebook and then news reports, it appears social services stepped in and the victim has been well cared for by family. And you guys, I truly hope so. The thoughts of how this has changed the trajectory of her life have really haunted me as I research this story. But here's the update to the story. Shelly Blandon, that's the daughter of Mark and Shari and the sister to Brooke, filed a lawsuit on Thursday in federal court alleging that the Washington County Sheriff's Office in Virginia was negligent when officials hired Austin. The lawsuit is seeking damages for the distress the family has endured. Shelley said she's bringing the lawsuit because her family wants to know how Austin was hired as a sheriff's deputy and given a gun when the courts ordered back in 2016 that he couldn't possess a firearm. 
She said she wants the Washington County Sheriff's Office held accountable for giving a mentally unfit person a badge and a gun. Now, since the killings, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin ordered a state inspector to conduct a full investigation of the matter. That investigation found that a background investigator for the state police failed to check the correct database that would have pulled up the mental health order and also the firearm restrictions that were placed on Austin. But understand this, the special investigation was in reference to his first law enforcement job with the Virginia State Police, not the new job with Washington County. And the Virginia State Police are not named as defendants in the lawsuit. Now, Washington County has not responded to the filing of the lawsuit. But one year ago, they released a statement about the killings by Austin that said, It was shocking and sad to the entire law enforcement community that such an evil and wicked person could infiltrate law enforcement while concealing his true identity as a computer predator and a murderer. Now, a GoFundMe that was set up last year has raised over $100,000 to help in the care of Brooke's two daughters. And a neighbor who lived next door to the Wynicks for more than two decades told ABC7 that she wanted everyone to know how loving Mark and Shari were. She said they were just the type of people that you would never think that this would happen to. Now, this is going to be interesting to see how it will play out. And I'll keep you updated on whether Shelly is awarded anything in her civil trial. And now to this disturbing story of murder out of Idaho that had several listeners asking for an update. Callie Randall, she wasn't an Idaho girl. She was a Wisconsin native with a self-proclaimed wild heart. But in the summer of 2009, her 24-year-old wild heart tangled up with Jeremy Best, a mechanic from the West. You guys, I just made that rhyme. It's completely unintended, but he was from the West. And her dear friend introduced Callie to the 34-year-old. And in a blog post, Callie wrote that her twisted mound of dreadlocks were wrapped into a beehive atop her head and that the Idaho sun had scorched her hungover, dehydrated, fair Midwestern skin. And she'd been told on that day of meeting Jeremy that there just wasn't anyone quite like Jeremy. So when Callie and her friend stopped by his mechanic shop to drop off a borrowed tool, Callie's life forever changed. She said he was pushing a broom across the smooth concrete floor when he raised his head, flashed a grin, and said, Hey, ladies. Callie said her stomach dropped, and she wasn't sure if it was his smile or his eyes. But she knew that her friend's gentle warning that there just isn't anyone quite like Jeremy had clicked in her brain. Their first date was three days long. Her and Jeremy camped in his rust-colored VW van named Ginger, and she wrote that they had hot-springed, cooked steaks in bear country at midnight. They got a flat tire, and they didn't even have a jack to fix it. She said they were instantly connected, and she was smitten. And three days for a first date? Well, that's unusual. But it seems the unusual was the usual for these two. Callie went on to leave her roots in Wisconsin, and she started this wild and unstructured life in the Teton Valley of East Idaho. Surrounded by stunning mountains and welcoming summers, and to be quite honest, sometimes brutal winters, 
Callie made what I can only determine from her writings was such an intriguing life. Just reading her words made me want to know her. She made stunning jewelry, and she captured photos that deserved to be published, and she embraced a life filled with wild ideas and desires. Her writings indicate that days weren't really planned, that summers were unfettered, and winters were for catching up on work. She and Jeremy Heliskeed in the Andes and hiked and camped amongst the Grand Tetons. And eventually, they married. And that marriage blessed the two with a baby named Zeke. Then just four months after Zeke was born, Callie was pregnant again. And reading Callie's blog and enjoying her beautiful photos that so frequently included self-portraits made you want to celebrate the unique and, in some ways, aspiring lifestyle she had created. I found myself wanting the apparent peace she had achieved. But you guys, we never know. When did it go wrong? Did previous hurdles in their lives come back to haunt the two? Was the nightmare that began last week just completely out of the blue? I'm sure time will reveal more details, but here's what we know as of now. On the morning of November 30th, nearing noon, employees at the Swan Valley General Store alerted the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office to a disturbance at the store. The employees were concerned about a man wandering around. Okay, so what's the problem? Well, the man was naked. Video from the incident shows a completely naked Jeremy resting on the store's counter next to the cash register with possibly an unlit cigarette dangling from his mouth. I can't quite tell, but it does seem that there are trash bags laying on the counter and maybe employees were trying to get him to like wrap the bags around his naked body. Jeremy's eventually escorted out of the store and he's transported to Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center in Idaho Falls. So let's walk through the geography a bit here. Jeremy and Callie live in the Teton Valley in Idaho, but that's near Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And the Swan Valley store is about 25 miles south of their home. And then the hospital that Jeremy is transferred to, well, that's another 45 miles-ish south of Swan Valley. So there was significant travel time to receive the help he clearly needed at the hospital and also significant travel time to get back to his house. Well, a deputy did follow the ambulance to the hospital, but it appears Jeremy was turned over to hospital staff. And after receiving an evaluation at the hospital, Jeremy was released later that afternoon. So I've got questions here that we just don't have answers yet. How did Jeremy get back to the Teton Valley? And how extensive was the psychiatric evaluation at the hospital? Whatever occurred in those afternoon hours, we do know it went horribly wrong that evening when he returned home. At 1141, a 911 call is placed from Jeremy and Callie's home. And it appears some talking was happening on the call before the dispatch operator was actually able to hear the entire recording. So what the dispatch operator heard was loud sounds of yelling, then a hang-up. Now, this concerned the operator enough to send a deputy to the scene. So what was later discovered when examining the phone recording was a woman's voice repeating the name Jeremy and then saying, Jeremy, no. Then a male voice repeats the word yes. He then yells, get the F back 
You're going to get shot. He then says, I love you. I love you. I love you. But the deputy who's dispatched, he doesn't know this information. He only knows that there seems to be a possible verbal scuffle with a hangup. So on the way to Jeremy's and Callie's home, the deputy passes only one car and it's a dark colored SUV. He is able to record four of the seven digits from that SUV's license plate. And the deputy continued to the home to verify the safety of the occupants. He arrives at about 11.55, so that's 14 minutes after the initial call. And I don't want you guys to get hung up on this. This is rural country and a very small police force, so 14 minutes does not seem like a long time to me. When the deputy arrived at the scene, he noticed a man standing across the street from Jeremy and Callie's house. He tells the deputy he is their neighbor and that he had come outside because he had heard a man and a woman fighting. The neighbor said while he was still inside his home, he heard the woman yell, Jeremy, stop it. You have a baby. He then heard what he thought were five gunshots that he was fairly certain were fired outside of Callie and Jeremy's home. The neighbor said when he got out of bed and walked to the window, he saw a black car backing out of the driveway. And according to the deputy, he approached the home and he knocked on two different exterior doors, but he got no response. And then as the deputy began walking down the driveway, he noticed Callie lying on the ground near the mechanic shop that was adjacent to the home. Kneeling in a large pool of blood, the deputy attempted CPR, but it became clear that Callie had died from multiple gunshot wounds. The 28-week pregnant Callie also had scratch marks on her lower stomach area and scrapes on her knees. When more deputies arrived, the scene began telling a story of despair. A revolver was located on the kitchen table. A large gun safe was found open in the master bedroom. A cell phone was shattered in the hallway. And most notably, a baby was missing. Around 4 o'clock that morning, an Amber Alert was issued for the 10-month-old baby Zeke. Along with the Amber Alert was a request from the Teton County Sheriff's Office for people to be on the lookout for the child's father, Jeremy Best. It said Jeremy was traveling in a 1995 Black Tahoe. It also said Jeremy was suspected to be heavily armed and dangerous, and that if he is spotted, he should not be approached. Well, all day Friday, the rural community was reeling with the news of Callie and her unborn baby's deaths, as well as the abduction of baby Zeke. And no news of the father and son surfaced until early the next morning, so that's Saturday morning, when hunters just north of Idaho Falls spotted a naked man in a sleeping bag off the side of the road. The area had been blanketed with snow the day before, so to see someone in a sleeping bag off the road in the cold temperatures was clearly not checking out. They quickly realized they had come across Jeremy, who was making odd statements to the hunters. And 911 was called, and Bonneville County Sheriff's deputies secured Jeremy in a patrol car. Now, the black Chevy Tahoe was located nearby, and then deputies located baby Zeke. Heartbreakingly, he was dead. Jeremy has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Now, those counts are for the deaths of Callie and her unborn child. Okay, but what about baby Zeke? Well, 
Some things need to be determined before potential charges can be filed. First off, how did baby Zeke die? His body has been sent for autopsy to Ada County Coroner's Office in Boise. Then secondly, the autopsy might help investigators determine where he was killed, because that matters. Will charges potentially be filed in Teton County, or will they be filed in Bonneville County? And time is on the side of investigators. Jeremy is incarcerated, and it seems he will not be let out. When he appeared before a judge in Teton County via a camera from the Bonneville County Jail, Jeremy was he was fidgety. He kept running his hands through his unruly long hair. And then at times, he even cried. And then at other times, he scratched at his face. And then at one point, he claimed his attorney wasn't even his attorney. And then he flashed the hook'em horn sign right before the cameras turned off. Or maybe it was the rock on sign. Okay, you know, the hand sign where your pinky and your index finger are extended and your thumb is tucked over your middle finger and your ring finger. All right, your guess is as valuable as mine on why he would flash that sign. And then prosecutors and the defense lawyers, well, they both agreed that Jeremy should receive a mental competency evaluation, and the judge quickly ordered that to happen. His next hearing is scheduled for December 18th, and bail is not expected to be granted since it's a first-degree murder case with more charges pending. And in the state of Idaho, he could face the death penalty for those murder charges. And I know you still have questions like what happened at the hospital when he was transferred there following the naked convenience store escapade? Well, the hospital has released the following statement. It reads, like all hospitals, we follow specific standards of care when we assess and treat individuals, including those with behavioral health concerns. Idaho law limits law enforcement, hospitals, and healthcare providers from placing individuals on a protective custody hold unless specific clinical criteria are met. When these factors are not present or apparent at the time of the care process, hospitals cannot legally hold a patient against their or their family's wishes. All right, now you might not be satisfied with that but we're working on very limited information here. So I'm withholding judgment, and I would suggest you do also. They might have done exactly what the protocol stated. And then how are Callie's Wisconsin family handling the devastating situation? Well, they also released a statement, and this is how it reads. We thank all of you for walking with us during this time. Our Zeke is now at rest with his loving mama and unborn sibling. The pain we feel is unimaginable, and we thank everyone for their support. You will never know how you have lifted our family up during this time. As this is an ongoing investigation, we ask for privacy as we take time to process and grieve. Now, one of my favorite blog posts that Kelly wrote just struck a chord with me because it would be something so simple that I could implement in my own life. Something sweet I could carry on for a woman I will never know. She explained that as a kid, one of her favorite memories from her birthday was being able to eat cake for breakfast the day after her birthday. She wrote that as an adult, she bakes a cake for herself the day before her birthday so she can wake up on her birthday morning and eat cake for breakfast. 
What a perfectly fantastic idea. And then I have one final bit of sadness that I found while searching for details about Callie's life. In a Facebook post, one of Callie's friends implored people to be on the lookout for Callie's dog named Sister. Now that post was updated saying Sister had passed on from this life and that there wasn't a need to search further. Okay, you guys, law enforcement and news reports haven't mentioned this detail at all, so I'm not sure if it's accurate. But if it is accurate, I hope Callie and her unborn baby, along with Zeke and their dog's sister, are having the best little play date in heaven. I'll keep you updated on baby Zeke and if and when charges are filed. Maybe if you're the praying sort, you can include in your prayers the small community that has been shattered by these murders. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. Before you leave, could you hit the like button if you're listening on YouTube or give Rise and Crime a follow or even better, subscribe for downloads. All of that helps this and Oh No Media grow and expand. And thanks for being here with me. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.